This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today's guest is Rowena Ho, Associate Professor of History at the Chinese University of Hong Kong and currently a fellow at the National Humanities Center. She is an expert on contemporary Chinese history and the deadly 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. It's one of the most taboo subjects in China today. The Tiananmen mothers are still not allowed to openly mourn their children and, and schools does not teach it. Professor Ho's writing and commentary appear regularly in the popular press, and she will be joining the University of Montana community on April 13th as part of the President's Lecture Series. Professor Ho, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having, uh, having me, Justin. So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? I was born in China, and actually during the the Cultural Revolution during Mao's Cultural Revolution, um, my my father is a, a physician, a medical doctor, and my mom is an opera singer. But during those days, it really doesn't matter what you did and who you were. You, they were just sent to the uh, rural area in the mountain areas. But actually, I grew up with my grandmother in the oh. city when my parents were sent away in the mountains. Yeah. So for some a listener not familiar with China. Describe your childhood. You said you, you grew up with your grandmother in the city. How large of a city? What, what was kind of the, the cultural moment that you were raised in? I grew up in Canton, not far away from uh, Hong Kong. That's why I speak Cantonese. Uh, but I my school education is in Mandarin. In those days, it's not unusual for kids to have parents being sent away because of Mao's Cultural Revolution. And I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but I think that kind of upbringing collectively for that generation would definitely have some impact uh, for, for, for this, on the society as well. And so describe your path into an academic career in your graduate studies at the University of Toronto. How did you decide to become a scholar? The year 1989, I think changed my life and and the life trajectory so many of those in my generation. You know, in spring 1989, millions of Chinese took to the street calling for political reform and the peaceful demonstrations uh, across the country, not just Tiananmen Square. I think that's what the general public's impression was. And it was ended on June 4th with the People's Liberation Army firing unarmed civilians under the gaze of the entire world. Over 200,000 army soldiers were deployed, equipped with AK-47s and tanks. I was in Guangzhou at that time, uh, far away from Beijing, but because uh, we were still able to access Hong Kong TV, uh, we were able to watch what's happening in the capital city of Beijing. And, and I think that changed my life. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the, the life of many of those in my generation. I, I mean, I was born in Mao's Cultural Revolution and grew up in Deng Xiaoping's reform era. We were told that our country was opening up and ref- having reforms. And um, we had these ideals about um, having a better future. We were told that uh, it's our responsibility to sacrifice for a better China, for the people, for the nation. And we saw that as our historical mission. And when we took to the street, doing exactly what we were taught, we were punished by that very system that instilled those values. And for the exiles, they were abandoned by the land that they sacrificed themselves for. 
I left China to get back to your question. Like I was very successful in the business world in the 1990s after Tiananmen, when Deng Xiaoping had this policy. You know, as you can make money any way you want, as long as you don't talk about politics and don't touch politics. I just like everyone else. I survive, and I was very successful in the financial field. But that morning of the massacre. To have my peers being shot and killed, you know that shadow of that morning could never, uh, uh, you know, get out of my mind. I re- I still remember on the morning of June fifth, when I returned to my campus, um, and I was wearing the black arm band, you know, the Chinese cultural way of mourning. My teacher came over and 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 he 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 said that um I think but out of the best att- intention he said if you don't take that off no one can protect you from now on. I tried to hold back my tears and I removed the black armband. The only choice we had was to shut my, keep my mouth shut or go to jail. So, I think in nineteen eighty nine we learned to lie in order to survive. So to jump back to the post eighty nine era,、um, I think that shadow of the June fourth morning、uh, follow us, and when there's a chance to, I didn't even know how to apply for schools in those days, so I just gave up the opportunity until after I was a very successful for a business person, and then. Canada had this immigration policy, so I was able to immigrate to Canada. So exactly twenty-five years ago, actually in March, I I carried two suitcases and I boarded a a plane to Canada from Hong Kong, and I landed. I'd never been to Canada or anywhere else, and people were telling me that you should take an MBA because of your business background. But somehow I just decided now that I'm in freedom. I really wanted to do something that I I had been longing to do in freedom, so I decided to not to take MBA, but instead to to take up the topic of Tiananmen,、uh, that's so close to my heart, and and of course at that time no one would have told you that oh Rowena you're going to write a book or teach a course or、uh, become an academia at that time. I I I just I think it's just very, you know, a young. Woman in a free country. Finally, you had the chance to do what you want to do, and that's my natural response. I wanted to do this, and at that time, I cannot articulate this way. I, I don't. I think now, in retrospect, I think that I want to keep the silence voices heard. I want to find out the truth,、uh, the historical, keep the preserve the historical memory that has been taboo by the government、mm-hmm. of Beijing. Yeah, and so in mainland China during those. Thirty years, and maybe even to today, like the history of the massacre was sort of erased. Right, students didn't learn yes, about it. Yes, People did、yes. not speak of it. It was just erased from the consciousness of the country. It's one of the most taboo subjects in China today. The Tiananmen mothers are still not allowed to openly mourn their children, and and schools does not teach it, and you cannot. Openly talk about it, and exiles are not allowed to return home, even for their parents' funeral. And of course, scholars are regularly banned from going to China for studying the topic.、Um, and and as you mentioned, exactly as you mentioned, that is、uh, erased. It's not just taboo; it's a erased history or twisted. They created this narrative that is a counter-revolutionary riot, is a Western conspiracy trying to divide China. But as you know, Justin, that well. 
you can twist history, you can erase history, but that manipulation and twisting is followed by twistings of all kinds, mm-hmm. uh, psychological, political, and, and social. I remember in those days, people used to ask me, Rowena, what has that to do with us? We need to bring food to the table. And then the politicians would tell me that I want to support these ideals as well. But now people are very realistic. We want, we need the votes. And I understand all of this. And of course, like we, we, we all want a good life for our loved ones, right? We want, we want, be, want to be successful. And at the time, I remember my answer was, we, in this global village, if the plane is being hijacked, it really doesn't matter if you got a business class or I got a window seat. We will end up in the same place. And that, and I remember in those days, people often asked me, Rowena, can you give me a concrete example? And at that time, I said, well, I'm not sure if I have one now, but maybe later you will see one. So you saw that in COVID. So when the when the doctors were silenced when COVID first started, when people cannot tell the truth, and eventually we all become the victims of that silence of one doctor's voice in China, wherever you are. For you, you leave your homeland, you go to a university where you were free to study and think and express the things you are interested in and passionate about and learning about. And then as a teacher, you often engage with students, maybe Chinese students who, who had not learned about any of this history. And some of those students push back. I've heard stories of students in your classes pushing back against some of the things you've, the sort of true history that you're trying to, to teach them. Talk about that dynamic of, of how your message has been received by your audience and some of the some of the activism you've had to pursue. I'm so glad that you brought this up because that's actually exactly uh, how I started my second book, right, about Chinese student nationalism. Um, and, and of course, you know, when I was first attacked in maybe now 2016, 20, 2017, uh, there's one big question that I didn't quite understand. So for my generation, being patriotic, meaning you try to be critical and to push your, your, your government to reform. And what happened to the post-Tianmen generation who tend not to distinguish between the regime and the nation and the people and the culture and, and rejected any serious criticism of a government as if you are betraying the country? That's my intellectual question that I was trying to address when it first happened to me. And that's also the layer of the second, uh, uh, the second uh, layer of the betrayal of loyalty, right? Because uh, you were not just facing the state power. And, and by the way, when you mentioned that I, I could teach, I could research, I could write in freedom. Yes, I was in freedom, but you are not free. Because you would constantly be worrying about your your loved ones in China, uh, and the repercussions and and what would be the consequences. And even even if you are American or, or or foreign, academic, you would worry about losing the chance to return to China to do your field work, or you would not be able to uh, join your colleagues to to attend academic um, uh, conferences 
I don't see myself as activism, activist, activism. I still see myself as a public intellectual. I think that uh, what I have been trying to do is to preserve the historical truth and to document uh, historical memory. But even for something so modest, it would be perceived as radical. Living in freedom but not never feeling free, that fear has never stopped. And then the second layer, facing the younger generation, who that I thought that I was, and not just me, right? So so many of those of us, all of a sudden, we have to face this accusation that you are betraying your country. And as early as the 1980s, I think, again, my generation grew up, the Tiananmen generation, we were influenced by that idea put forward by a well-known journalist, Liu Binyan, the second kind of loyalty. So he's asking the question, you know, can a loyal citizen be critical of a government? Is this, should this also be considered as loyalty and patriotism, right? So I think that the betrayal of loyalty, I think we have always, always been loyal to those ideals of liberty and freedom. And that's what we are loyal to. And the Communist Party came into power promising the people the Chinese Revolution was about those ideals and values too. But when the revolution became the regime, became those in power, they was they 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 turned against those people who tried to, you know, push them to uphold those values. And this revolution, and that's why they call all those people who are now being critical as the counter-revolution, as counter uh, as against the Communist Party, but not that revolutionary ideals that they had promised people. We'll be back to our conversation with Rowena Ho after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey, this is Mark Moss from Tell Us Something, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Rowena Ho, professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong and an expert on contemporary China. And is that just a function of consolidation of power and trying to control people? Um, I think I think that's very obvious, right? You saw this in the Soviet Union and Russia, and and of course, like Putin is telling people that you know we are doing the right thing with the the invasion now in Ukraine, and 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 I think that's uh, typical, and you saw this throughout uh, the Communist Party history as well. And as a historian, I'm not unfamiliar with all of these trends. But of course, in daily life, when you have to face the fear and then when you have to face the attacks and, 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 and challenges. And of course, at first I was shocked. I, I was, I was, I was a graduate student as well, right? Like any human beings, I, I like to be like, and I'm very Chinese as well. I don't like to be confrontational with other others. So I had learned a long way to just always be calm and use my patience. And I would have to say that in the past, maybe at least five years, I met many wonderful uh, Chinese students who were willing to listen, even though when they came to a classroom with uh, suspicion uh, and, and, and with hesitation and all of those, of course, always with fear. But eventually, I was able to convince 
or they learn as well. So I have I have many many stories to tell, and in Hong Kong as well. So you saw the white paper movement, the recent one, and this is almost like a reconciliation of the younger generation and of those people like me. Finally, they are on the same page to see that.、Um, The price one have to pay for speaking truth to power, and also the importance for any citizens, not just Chinese or anyone, like as global citizens, the importance that we need to have the freedom to speak our mind, and and we all are entitled to those liberty、uh, for 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 academic freedom, and without any of those. There would be no true inquiry, and of course, that、like, China has to face its past in order to have a future, right? There's no reconciliation without truth. So I think that COVID, we suffer a lot, but at the same time, unexpectedly, because of this experience that the younger generation have to go through in China and watching how the government is presenting the narrative of COVID. Both inside and outside China, bring us together to realize that when the collective memory of the nation's immediate past were being manipulated and twisted, so many things would have、uh, been twisted as well. In our remaining time, take a moment to describe the personal risks you have taken in your career and continue to take. I mean, it's not clear that you'll be able to. Go back to your university in Hong Kong. There's risk to your family. Talk about that risk and and how you and how you cope with it. For a long time, I I would have told you to、uh, move on to another question. I mean, anyone who asked me, and I constantly struggle between doing the right thing. It's especially painful to think about the whole point of doing what I am doing. Are、uh, I mean, researching and teaching and and publishing and writing and speaking about this historical past was exactly because I wanted to speak for those young lives that were violently silenced in 1989. So it pains me to think that I cannot speak freely. But with the challenges that you mentioned just now, I sometimes ask myself, especially after COVID, I'm I'm sure like、um, we all have this so searching at some point in the past three years. It seems that life is so short, and we also wanted to ask ourselves, what do you want to do? What do you want? What is most important? Can I just wait another ten years or something? Uh, maybe it's the same question. When I was doing my PhD, trying to finish my dissertation, trying to write my book,、uh, people would say that, "Okay, look for academic publisher, do it academically," and you all have to face all that kind of、uh, challenges.、Um, especially for me, like I, I didn't have someone or something to fall back on. I, I'm a new immigrant. If I, I lost the two suitcases, then that's all that I had. In this world, but but then you you often ask yourself, why am I doing this? I could have been just in the business world and get a house and and get a car. I never even own a car or a house or anything in this country. I I kept teasing to my students. I said, if I had been a boat person, if I worked for twenty years that hard, I could have at least got something. But I guess 
Tiananmen taught me many things, of course. People think about the Tiananmen massacre, it reminds you about repression. But I think Tiananmen also reminds us the human beings a universal longing for basic rights, for freedom. And 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 those were the things that kept me going. Um, so now if you ask me these questions, those were very tough questions and I do not even know uh, what's going to happen uh, to me like in two months or next year. Um, and the reason that I value the communities, many of the communities that I have been to in this country was because individually, many of the individual in this country or in in freedom, they they may not be in a position with power, but they saw me and they saw people like me and they tried to support us in our universal cause for this freedom and truth. I think it's that sense of solidarity and community that kept me going, just like those candlelights in Victoria Park in Hong Kong, just like those hundreds of people in Denison Theatre. When I was thinking about giving up, when I had all this fear, I think it's these people that keep me going. They give me that sense of the power of the powerless, that there's certain things that cannot be crushed by guns and tanks and jails. That's the power of the powerless. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing. And I do hope that, and I expect that when you arrive on campus and give your talk in a couple of weeks that you will experience a similarly engaged and generous and curious audience. We're excited for your visit. Yeah, thanks. I should have mentioned that uh, in the audience last time, there were uh, a, a number of Chinese students and they were so shy or maybe they were scared. They actually waited until the crowd, everyone was gone and I don't know where they were hiding or something out of the blue. They just show up in the dark, in the rain, waiting for me with, you know, both confusion uh, in their, on their faces, but at the same time also um, enthusiasm. And and they, they started to share their stories, what their parents told them. Um, I'm not sure if they're still in the area, but I would welcome Chinese students to come to the talk too. I hope that we would have um, a free conversation and especially after um, all, all that COVID and all this experience has passed. Um, I think one thing I learned is that uh, only when there's a discourse, then we can, I think, I think that this country maybe can learn that too. Like only when we have a discourse, we would be able to have a future. And if we just radicalize and silence each other and, and, and brutalize each other, then, then without dialogue and conversations, we cannot move forward. Yeah, that's, that's um, a great observation. I do think that you know, the, the culture we're experiencing here in the United States in no way approximates, you know, some of the, the oppression that you, you and your generation lived through. But there is a narrowing of what is acceptable in the discourse, and that is, it has to be a concern. Any comments on that from your vantage point, just observing what's happened in the dialogue here in the United States? When I left 
the U.S. was not like this. Let's put yeah. it this way. I returned. I felt that this is a different country. I I saw the tension starting, but I started to feel that this is also global because in Hong Kong, I saw this radicalized.、Uh, The different groups were radicalizing and brutalizing each other, and people were so tempted to just shut down the dialogue, the the platform. I remember when I first landed Hong Kong, the the, the Hong Kong students didn't want to talk to the mainland students, and the mainland students, the students from China.、Uh, Did not want to talk to the Hong Kong students, so that it was such a tense moment, and and that's why I said that I don't care what happened outside my classroom, but if you cannot even communicate and talk to each other, like what can we do? This is an academic institute. So I came back. I was kind of wondering what. It's just three years. I feel that I returned to a different country. It seems that that trend is global, and I do hope that people would. Talk to each other again, and I hope that we's not just those superficially with all these political correct slogans on on either side. And one thing, maybe from a, both an insider and outsider, I lived this, in this country for more than ten years, and then I I was from outside, both as both an insider and outsider. I really hope that you would. Preserve and protect democracy. My generation took to the streets in 1989. We had that goddess of democracy established in Tiananmen Square because we wanted to have that goddess of liberty too. We wanted to have all those values you have too, and we have used generation after generation at the price of freedom and lives and tears and blood, and we still do not get it. And it it pains my heart that now if you cannot. Protect this and preserve this, and and even letting some forces to destroy it. I hope that the United States of America would unite and protect that values. That was a major part of the dreams of my generation, and I hope that I would feel that I would have a country and a place and a land to return to if I cannot return to mine. That's very well said, and and deeply appreciated. Thank you. We are excited for your visit. The name of your talk is "The Betrayal of Loyalty from Tiananmen to Hong Kong," and it will occur on April thirteenth at seven thirty in the University Center Ballroom. For more information, visit umt.edu/president. Rowena, thank you so much for joining me today and、uh, sharing your. Your values, your vision, and your expertise with our listeners. Honored to、uh, speak with you today, and、uh, excited for you to engage with the Montana community in a couple of weeks. Yeah, thank you so much, Justin, for for the time、uh, and giving me this opportunity to speak out again after such a long time. And I look forward to seeing the cows in Montana. We got plenty of those. Thanks for listening to a new angle. We really appreciate it, and we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hanson. A new angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business, with additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO Jeff Amet and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott, social media by AJ Williams, and Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.